whatever your field is, you have probably experienced something where you've decided this is going to be how we're going to fix all these problems. This is the plan. This is the strategy. You get together. You have a big meeting. Everybody's all hyped up. And then you get out, and like the first week, it all falls on its face, and it doesn't work. You ever see that happen? Maybe you have a end-of-the-year business meeting, and you come up with new strategies, and these are our numbers for this year, and here's our five new core values or whatever it is, and we're going to talk to the customers nice this year, and we're not going to, and, you know, then the first week, that all gets blown out of the water. Every football coach has gone into the game with a winning strategy, and yet just about half of them lose every time. Maybe you're writing your New Year's resolutions. Everybody groans. I love that. Everybody writes their New Year's resolutions. This is how we're going to do it. This is the strategy. It's never worked every year before this, but this year is different. And then you hit February, and yeah, it seems like a waste of money to keep that gym membership. So let's go ahead and cancel it. There was a German general from the 1800s named Helmut von Moltke. and He said, no battle plan ever survives first contact with the enemy. Isn't that the truth? And it doesn't matter if you're a general or you're in business or you're a coach or it's just life. You have to do life. You have to live life in the real world where real things happen. And not everybody else has gotten the same memo about how it's going to get done. You've probably learned that if you try to wait in your life for the perfect storm, for everything to align perfectly, you're never going to accomplish anything. <laughs> I had a friend in high school, and he'd hate me for telling this story, but... He waited months to ask this girl to be his girlfriend, even though it was very obvious that she wanted him to. And every day it was a new thing. Look at this text she sent me, bro. Dude, check this out. I'm like, well, just ask her. And there was always some reason. Always, oh, it's weird. It's, you know, it's Valentine's Day is too close, or it's about to be Christmas, or the semester's almost over. And then when he finally did get the courage to ask her out, she had moved on and was into somebody else, and she told him no, and we all had a good hearty laugh over that one. <laughs> They're both happily married to other people, so it's okay to tell that story now. But, you know, it's the same thing when it comes to the faith, when it comes to living the Christian life. It would be great if we could say, look, as soon as the election is over, then we can make a plan, and it'll work, and it'll be perfect. Or we could say, let's just wait until... This current social crisis is over, the coronavirus or whatever it is. Let's just wait until it's over. Then we can really get serious. Or it would be great if you could say, you know, there's just this false teaching is sweeping through the country. Let's just wait until that kind of dies down, and then people will listen to us again. But I think we understand that that's not real life. There's always going to be something else. There's always going to be another obstacle. There's always going to be another false teacher, another crisis, another war, another pandemic. I hope not, but you understand what I'm saying. But here's the deal. You can't wait for everything to be perfect in order to get out and start doing what God's called you to do. You've got to put your boots on and work in the hot sun. You ever say, well, it's probably going to rain today, so I'm not going to mow the lawn. And then it gets around 1 o'clock, and yeah, the sun is still out. I better get out and do it. Sometimes you've got to ride in the rain. You've got to play hurt. There's no perfect circumstance that you are going to encounter that will make it super easy and very smooth for you to follow Jesus. In this story, Paul and James are going to make a plan about how they're going to work reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it's a good plan. And it's the kind of plan we could get on board with. But it is going to fail spectacularly. 
despite our desire to lead the world to Jesus, to do ministry without being harassed by folks who don't believe, we live in the real world. And there's always going to be obstacles to face. There's always going to be people. There's always going to be situations. There's always going to be political realities. Paul faced it. Jesus faced it. Every generation has faced it. People have different ideas than we do. They have different priorities, different goals, different values. And the gospel message is going to run up against that. Jesus himself said in John 15, 19, you know this one, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is saying they're not going to like you because you're not like them. And he goes on to say, they hated me. They're fitting to nail me to a cross in a couple hours. So why should you expect any different? And we have, throughout church history, tried to make little circles where we can do Christianity perfect without being touched. You know, that was the, the Puritan idea. We're going to leave the old world and come to the new world, and we're going to make it just the way we want it. Say, so, oh, that was a fine idea, but you also brought your sin nature with you, unfortunately. You know, we got to leave the monastery or the seminary or even the churches, even our homeschools, all these things that we put together so that we can maintain who we are. We've got to walk out of those things. And we can't expect the world to change because they're not gonna. So we've got to learn to carry on with what God has told us to do, even when our plans get trampled by an angry mob, as Paul's did. So let's read this now, starting at verse 17, and we'll go down to verse 26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads." Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them." So Paul finally makes it back to Jerusalem. This is the end of his third missionary journey. This had taken years. Remember, he spent a year and a half in Corinth, three years in Ephesus. It took him months to make his way back. But that was probably his most effective missions trip. And he wanted to get back in Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. Do you remember that? They were trying to hurry, and they didn't want to go back to Ephesus. They just stayed in Miletus for that reason. He's bringing all those companions that we talked about. He's got Luke with him. You see the, the we in the first verse of our passage, verse 17 there, that we were with him. 
And they're all representing the various churches he's planted, and you'll remember their financial contributions. Remember we talked about this? They're all putting together a collection to deliver to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And the reason for that, as we all know, if you're familiar with your Bible, the Jews and the Gentiles were at odds with each other all the time. That the Gentiles had been brought into the church, and the Jewish Christians had finally been led to accept that, okay, there are Gentiles here, but the fellowship aspect was missing. They were saying, yes, they're Christians, but that doesn't mean I have to eat dinner with them, you know. They were still that tension, and they were very suspicious of the Gentile churches. So the Gentiles take the initiative here. I really like that, that the ones who are being excluded are the ones that take the initiative to bring about reconciliation. They say, let's, let's make a donation. Let's make a donation for the poor in Jerusalem in order to build some bridges. You know, it's a great idea. And you can see that James and the elders there, they desired the same thing, and they were rejoicing and glorifying God. Now this James is James the brother of Jesus. James the son of Zebedee was the first apostle to be martyred. We've already read that. This is not James the son of Alphaeus. This is James the brother of Jesus. We've already seen back in Acts 15 and elsewhere that the 12 apostles were travelers. They took the gospel around the world, and they kind of used Jerusalem as a base, but Thomas went to India, and Peter, we believe, went to Rome at some point. So they were going out from Jerusalem, James himself was kind of the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He oversaw that church there, and we saw in chapter 15 his wisdom. He would, of course, write the book of James, and we know that he would be martyred by being thrown off the pinnacle of the temple. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus and said, throw yourself off from here? That That's how they killed him. They took him to the end, and they threw him off, and the story goes that he didn't die from that, so they stoned him, and then they finally came in and cut his head off. So the malice towards him. But that's about five years out from this. So right now, he's still pastoring this church here. Now, when Paul gets here in Jerusalem, national fervor for Israel was at a fever pitch right now. This is approximately, give or take, 57 A.D., and in only a few years, the Jews are going to rebel against Rome for what will be the last time. They were sick and tired of Rome. They were sick and tired of the taxes. They were sick and tired of being told how to live. This is the promised land. You can't just come in here and tell us what to do. We discussed going through Luke that Rome had betrayed them. They had been their allies in casting off Greece. And then finally Rome came in and betrayed them and became their new overlords. And the Jews are angry. So these Jewish Christians, it's not just Pentecost, but this is millions of Jews. The city would have swollen. It was one of the three required feasts. They're not only skeptical of Gentile Christians, but they are now as proud and as dogged in their defense of their Judaism, of their Jewishness, as they've ever been. Because this is the political situation. They're ready to fight now. And in a few years, they're going to fight. And here comes Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, taking the message of the Jewish Messiah to Romans. Very similar to how Jonah didn't want the good news to go to the Ninevites. That's the Assyrian Empire. They're, they're overlords. They're dominant over us now. I don't want to take good news to them. Now you might think, well, the Jewish Christians ought to know better, but let's be honest. Sometimes as Christians, we have a hard time separating what the Lord would have us to do from what we in our patriotic fervor would like to do, right? It's no different back then. 
And Paul's not only going out converting these Gentiles to Christianity, he's not circumcising them, he's not requiring them to keep the law, and he's also not really keeping it himself when he's with the Gentiles. And so James is talking about these rumors that are coming in. And now you see that the rumors have intensified what was true. What they were saying was Paul is going out telling the Jews, stop circumcising your kids, stop keeping the law of Moses, abandon your heritage, which is exactly what they would not want to hear right now. This is like a Tory coming to preach during the American Revolution. They don't want to hear it, which is not true. Paul was not telling them don't circumcise your kids. He wasn't telling them stop keeping the law. He taught that observance of the law was not necessary for salvation, which is what the church had already agreed back in Acts chapter 15. He also taught that it was not necessary for practical righteousness. You know how we do that sometimes? We'll say, I mean, you don't have to do it to be saved, but you should do it. And you're just a better Christian if you do it, you know. I've heard a lot of different things put in that category. And they're saying, no, I mean, yeah, you don't have to keep the law to be saved, but a good Christian will understand that you should. Paul wasn't teaching that. He was teaching that that was never the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was never to bring about salvation. And it couldn't work out righteousness. All the law could do was evidence your lack of righteousness. But Paul was fine with viewing the law as a cultural marker. Paul circumcised Timothy because he knew they were going to be around Jews. He also knew that it was a great tool to lead people to Christ. He would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, the law is good if you use it lawfully. His whole problem was people that were trying to use the law for something it was never intended for. But there was no cultural bias here. Paul wasn't saying, we got to stop being Jews. we got to abandon our heritage, abandon everything that we know, all of our history. Paul was just saying, don't think that that's going to save you, which is what the church was already teaching. But they were attributing malice to Paul's liberty. Paul did not feel obligated to keep kosher when he was with Gentiles. Because he says, I'm not going to do that. It's more important for me to get their soul saved. And they'd say, oh, see, it's because you hate the, the temple, you hate the law, you hate Moses. But Paul never forced Gentiles to become Jews, and he never forced Jews to stop being Jews. He was only concerned with the gospel message. He puts it real clear this way in Romans 10. This was Paul's heart for the Jews. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You ever fall into that trap? You're really passionate for Jesus, but you're aiming it in the wrong direction because you don't understand, you have no knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul's like, I love my Jewish brothers. I want to see them saved. The problem is they're so passionate for God, but they think that the law is going to get them there. But all the law can do is bring them to Christ. And James knew that too. And you see it right there. He says, now I'm not, I'm, I'm not about to put anything else on these Gentiles. We've already settled this issue. But the problem was these Jewish Christians thought that Paul had a, a personal vendetta against the law or against Moses. And so James wants to do the same thing Paul wants to do. He wants to build a bridge between these churches. And Paul brings in this gift, and James says, that's great. He said, but they're still going around saying that you're out there dogging Moses and telling people to stop being Jewish and stop circumcising your kids. Wasn't true, but the social and political situation at the time 
was not really in the mood for nuance, if you understand what I mean. So he says, here's what we're going to do, Paul. I would like you to sponsor some people who are going through some temple rituals, and I think it would be good for you to do one too. Because he's trying to demonstrate that I've got nothing against Moses, nothing against the temple, so that way it would clear away all the rumors so that they could actually have a conversation. And Paul agrees to do this. And there are folks that want to say, well, Paul shouldn't have done this because he should know that the law was over. No, Paul had freedom. He had freedom to not observe the law. He also had freedom to observe the law. It goes both ways. If you think you, you only have freedom in one direction, you're not really free, are you? But he's got these four men here that are completing a vow. This is a Nazarite vow. You're probably familiar with the Nazarite vow with men like Samuel and Samson and John the Baptist who were Nazarites from birth which meant they grew up, they never cut their hair. That's, that's something to think about. Samuel the prophet and Samson and John the Baptist would have had big, long hair and big, long beards because they never, ever cut it. And that was one of the rules of being a Nazarite. You didn't cut your hair. You also didn't drink any fermented drink. You actually weren't supposed to eat grapes either because the idea was stay far away from it. You weren't allowed to touch any dead body. You had to remain clean for that whole time. And it was just a way of of a voluntary service to the Lord, of saying, this is my demonstration of obedience to the Lord. Maybe it's a point of prayer, right? And you could do this for any length of time. You could do it for seven days. You could do it for seven years. You could do it for your whole life. And when you were finished, you had to come and you had to pay the sacrifice. Each person, according to Numbers chapter 6, would have had to provide two lambs, a male and a female lamb, a ram, so a grown sheep. There were several different loaves of bread they had to bring in, some leaven, some not. They had to bring in grain, they had to bring in wine, and they would bring in these offerings. And then they then would shave their head and shave their beards, and they would burn that on the altar too. And they're saying, Paul, these guys are about to go in and go through this ritual, so why don't you pay for the stuff? You pay for the lambs, you pay for the bread, and you go in there with them, and you kind of be their sponsor in completing their vow. And we actually already read in chapter 18, verse 18, that Paul himself had gone under a vow. I think it was during his second missionary journey that he was under a Nazarite vow, which means Paul hadn't cut his hair or beard for a while until he got back to Jerusalem. So he's totally fine with this. And it also says, you purify yourself. Numbers chapter 19 gives the law about purification. Now, normally that was for if you touched a dead body or if you were unclean in some other way if you touched a leper or something like that, and very practical there. Like, you've got to go through a process of making sure that you're not contagious before we let you back in. But this was also used ceremonially, like when a Jew would come back from a long journey, they'd go back to the temple and purify themselves. It was a symbolic way of, of coming home. You know, I've been out in the world, but now we're back in the Lord's house. And they would come in, and there would be, on the third day, you would have a special ritual cleansing. And then on the seventh day, there would be a ritual cleansing too. So he's saying, Paul, go out and do some real Old Testament Mosaic law stuff so that these people know you don't have any animosity against that except as concerns salvation. And Paul's down with that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, he would encourage us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says, you want to get excited about something? Get excited about bringing unity to the church. And so Paul's like, absolutely. Even to the point of sacrificing his own liberty. Paul had the freedom in Christ as we do 
to not go back into that temple anymore. He didn't have to offer those sacrifices. Jesus was his sacrifice. He didn't have any obligation to take a vow before the Lord or to purify himself. He'd been baptized. He'd been purified. But Paul's willing to say, hey, I'm willing to give up my freedom in order to promote unity in the church. Because if we truly believe that these ceremonies don't have any significance spiritually, then what difference does it make if I go and do it? 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 22. Paul said, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. You catch that? He says, I'm willing to keep the law for your sake, but don't think that means that I'm bound by the same law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. He's saying when I'm with the Gentiles, I don't keep the law. He says, that doesn't mean that I've cast off all restraint and I don't do anything righteous or good. He says, it just means that I know that Christ is my law now. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Sometimes, you guys, there are things that we've got to do, even though we know it's not a big deal, but to that person, it is a big deal. So what's the big deal in doing it for them? There was nothing wrong with worshiping in the temple. Why wouldn't you? If you could be there and worship in God's temple, why wouldn't you? You could look at it and you could see how Christ fulfilled all of these things. You could say, we love the temple, but you know what's even better than this? Is that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You offer the sacrifice, not in payment for your sin, but to commemorate that Jesus was the sacrifice that paid for your sin. And Paul was willing to do that to cultivate brotherhood in the church. And we need to do that for each other because the church, the Bible says, is composed of every tribe and every nation and every tongue under heaven. We're not all the same. Even among people that are under the same culture, if you want to call it that. We've all got different things that just make us uncomfortable or that we're more serious about than somebody else. And you might have biblical freedom to not do something, but there are times when it, it's like, is it really worth it? Is that really the hill that you want to die on? Paul, do you really want to ostracize the Jewish Christians further from the Gentile Christians by taking a stand on something so silly as paying for somebody's voluntary sacrifice? There's going to be friction in the church. When we go to Nepal, they are very, very scrupulous about keeping the men and the women separated culturally. So in, in the churches over there, the men sit on one side and the women sit on the other side. Now we hear that and in, you know, our hackles rise on the back of our necks. That's segregation. You shouldn't do that. It's discriminatory. They don't see it that way. They just see it as decent. They say it's indecent for men and women to sit so close to each other. You know, keep that stuff at home. And we think that's, we, we might want to come and tell them, hey, you, are, you need to be liberated in Christ Jesus to sit with each other. Or you can just go, is this really a, a fight we want to have? How about we just sit on sides of the church building and call it a day? There are certain things you do want to stand on, so you've got to make sure you're not using up all of your energy and all of your goodwill to fight over the stupid stuff. For example, back in the church in Virginia, we reached a point where the worship team made some dress code changes. If you're going to be on the stage, you need to have a collared shirt on. We're not going to wear shorts. 
We're going to just dress up a little bit. Now, my family and the people that planted that church had come from California. So we're in shorts and flip-flops in church. Who cares, dude? Everybody dresses like that. But we came to Lynchburg, Virginia, where Liberty University was. And there are people that cared very strongly about that. What about dressing your best for Jesus? Now, I could come out and be snarky and say, oh, yeah, show me where that's in the Bible. Or I could say, it's really not a big deal. I'll wear a tie. Or I'll wear not shorts on stage. Or, and there's some people that, like, well, then if that's the case, then I, I can't play on this worship team. Like, see, that seems like there might be something else going on in there if you're not willing just to put on a collared shirt every once in a while. Well, you're, you're, you're in the way of my liberties. That doesn't sound like you're free, because if you were free, it wouldn't matter. We never want to place such an emphasis on our own things or our own freedom that we can't worship together and fellowship together in love. There should be give and take on both sides. These Jewish Christians needed to get over themselves. They did need to do that. And that's what James, as their pastor, and Paul, as their brother, wanted to do. But they knew that right now they're so stuck in this, let's take the first step and demonstrate to them that we want to be unified and want to show Christian love to one another. So that means if you've got something where you are free in Christ Jesus to do something or to act a certain way, but there are other folks that you know that's a big deal for them, how about just stop or keep it to yourself? In this social media world, it's like if we can't publicly proclaim it from the rooftops, we feel like somehow we're being restricted. Whatever happened just to keeping things to yourself every once in a while? And if you know that you've got something that just bugs you, you think it ought to be done this way, but you've got no biblical ground to stand on, just take it easy. There are other times where we look at the other side, too. These Jewish Christians, they were wrong. They were wrong about Paul. And they were wrong to stand so strongly on the things that didn't matter anymore. Their priorities were way out of whack. They needed to hear that. But somebody's got to take the first step, and it should be the one who is more mature in Christ. So whatever it is, we ought to be, as as Paul says in Ephesians, submitting to one another, deferential to each other. This bothers me. Okay, well, I won't do that then. Like, this bothers me, but I realize that it's not such a big deal. So you know what? I'm just going to back off. Can I give you one quick example before we move on of where this needs to apply? When new Christians get saved, they haven't learned all the rules yet. They know Jesus, but they don't know the cultural stuff yet. They don't know the cool Christian phrases. They don't know how you're supposed to dress necessarily. They don't know how you're supposed to talk about people. And they might walk in and we get all upset. Like, they shouldn't be in here dressed like that. She shouldn't be talking like that. Why is he doing that for? Why? And we get all upset and angry. That's the time for us just to chill out and say, hey, they're here. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? If someone that looks like that walked in here, that's awesome. Instead of getting right in their face with it, you know? So this is what Paul's going to do. This is their plan. We brought the offering. You're going to go in. You're going to go through the purification ritual. You're going to pay for them to finish up their Nazarite vow. And then that'll smooth some of the waters here. Well, let's read verse 27 through 36 now. Paul never had much luck with trying to calm things down. When the seven days were almost completed, that's the seven days of his purification that we talked about, the Jews from Asia... Seeing him in the temple, Paul can't catch a break, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! 
This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed or assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, just like Agabus had prophesied, huh? He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! So Paul is going through a week of purification in an attempt to placate and show love to the Jews. And he runs across some of his old enemies in the temple. He probably thought, I'm going to leave all that behind me. We'll deal with them later. Let's go take a break and go to Jerusalem. And there they are. The Jews, it says, were from Asia. I've said it a thousand times. This is not Asia, the continent. This is Asia, the Roman province, modern-day Turkey. This is probably Ephesus. These Jews were from Ephesus, maybe from Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, a lot of different churches Paul planted there. And they saw Paul with Trophimus, who was an Ephesian, and they assumed that Paul had brought him into the inner courts. It's amazing what you can assume when you don't have any information, isn't it? The more we talk about it, the more certain we become. How dare he bring that man into this city? During Pentecost, no less, bringing Gentiles here, probably going to bring him into the temple. Yeah, I'll bet he did bring him into the temple. You know, I did see him going into the temple with some people. He brought that man, and see, now it's spiraled way out of control. Now, the, the temple was organized where you had the outer court, which was called the court of the Gentiles. That's where everybody could be. Anybody could come into the court of the Gentiles and worship, but then there was another wall. And the wall behind that was called the court of the women, because that's where anybody who was a Jew could go, Jewish men and Jewish women. The next court was called the court of the men, and that's where the altar and the bronze laver and all that were, because that's where the men could come to offer the sacrifices. And then beyond that, you actually went into the temple building, and that was the holy place with the table of the showbread and the lampstand and everything. Then there was the holy of holies, which only one high priest could go into once a year. And they tied a rope around his leg in case he got struck dead and they had to drag him out of there. It was separated. And so they're saying, this guy brought a Gentile into the temple. When I was in Nepal, we were at, uh, it's called Pashpati Temple. And it's this Hindu thing and they're burning sacrifices and everything everywhere. And there's this one little walled off place in the middle and, uh, Nanda says, yeah, you, we can't go in there. You, they're not going to let you in there. And so I thought, well, I'm going to play the dumb tourist and try to get in there. And I did. And I strolled up with my phone, like taking pictures, you know. And this very, very nice Nepali man stopped me. and said, I'm very sorry. You can't go in there, sir. Big smile at his face. I'm like, why not? He says, only Nepalis can go in there. I'm like, well, I, I said, I, I've been visiting for a while. And he's like, no, 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 no. Very kind. You, you can't go in. And he says, even if you were a Hindu from another country, you couldn't come in here. 
So similar thing, but the difference was I did manage to get a picture that is probably forbidden among Hindu thing, but of this giant golden bull statue that they were all worshiping. Probably, I mean, it was as high as probably a lamppost outside. There was huge. But they weren't going to let me in there. The difference is the Jews were actually worshiping the true God and not some idol, but it's a similar thing. Now this crowd would have been larger than normal because it was Pentecost. Everybody had to come. All the Jewish men were supposed to come from all around the world for this feast. And they start a riot, beating Paul. How dare you? Remember, nationalist political fervor is at its peak right now. you not taking this seriously, Paul. And it gets the attention of the soldiers. Now, there was a fortress called the Antonia Fortress that was about 100 feet high that looked over the walls of the temple so that the soldiers could see in there and know what was going on. They, the Jews made a big deal about it when the Romans tried to have their soldiers in the temple. So eventually Rome compromised with them and said, we'll put this thing right here so that we can see what's going on, but we won't actually be in the temple itself. And it says the tribune in charge of the cohort, a cohort according to the Roman terms, was 1,000 soldiers. This would have been 760 infantry, 240 cavalry, under the command of 10 centurions. So we've met centurions before. Ten of those made up a cohort. And the man in charge of that was called the tribune. And he comes down. There were steps that would take you into the outer court, which they were allowed to be there. And they run down the steps, and they put Paul into kind of sort of protective custody. Imagine how frustrating this would have been for Paul and for James, because they're trying to make nice. They're trying to calm suspicions, only to be wrongfully accused by the Jews over something that Paul didn't even do. It wasn't even like, I'm willing to suffer for the gospel. Like I didn't even do that, and I've got to suffer for that. The Jews were not interested in a nuanced disagreement. They were angry about Rome. They were defensive of their own culture and their own heritage. They felt like they were losing it under Roman rule. And here's some guy bringing Gentiles into the temple. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus had prophesied this. Verses 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The church knew that its responsibility was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. The Jews were never going to get on board with that. Up to this point, the church had been operating sort of like a denomination within Judaism. It's that weird little sect that meets in Solomon's portico. Let's just ignore them. Because every time we try to persecute them, miracles happen and more people get saved. So <laughs> let's leave them alone. But now what you're seeing is, is the wineskins are starting to burst. Because this is what we have to do. We can't ignore the Gentiles. We can't not go to the rest of the world. And the Jews are not going to permit the Christians to be a part of Judaism anymore. In fact, when, when Jerusalem fell in AD 70, which was less than 15 years after this story, they officially declared Jesus to be a heretic and for Christianity to be a heresy, and that's, that's the way it is today. You can't, you know, go to synagogue and be a good Orthodox Jew and a Christian. They won't put up with that. Now, there are some folks that claim, you know, if the church does her job right, everyone will love us. You ever hear that before? 
If you live just the way Jesus wants you to live, everyone will love you. No one will ever get mad at you. The church will be celebrated and will be rewarded with prizes and political influence. It's going to be great. That is not the case. Let me just disillusion you right now. If we could just get the church to start loving people, then finally they would love us. No. They crucified Jesus, remember? Is anybody more loving than Jesus? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Galatians 5.11 calls it the offense of the cross. We preach something that is so radical and so offensive, it's never going to fit into the world and its philosophies. The wineskin is either going to burst or they're going to try and stamp it out. And this is not any different in our day. Our culture cannot accept that we teach that we are all sinners before God. There have been some very prominent people that have said, Christians teaching their children that they are sinners is child abuse, and they shouldn't be allowed to raise their children teaching them that. And we hear that, and you get so aggravated because it's like, that's not, you're missed, that's not the point. Yes, we're sinners, but we're saved. You're missing like the whole reason we get together, right? But we don't often get the chance to explain ourselves. To teach people that, how are we saved? Repentance, humility, and submission. Oh, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that you've got to repent. You've got to humble yourself before God. You've got to die to yourself. You've got to give up on the life that you thought you were living. Hang on a cross with Jesus. Come and die with us. That's offensive to people. To say nothing of all the other teachings that are infuriating to the world that the church teaches. And I mean, I hope it doesn't go this way, but if racial tensions continue to escalate and the church is still standing over here saying, no, one blood, one in Christ Jesus, folks are going to get in their face and say, pick a side. It's happened before. You can't just stand in the middle. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not part of your world. I'm not playing your games. And then everybody will find a common enemy. You know what? I hate you and I hate you, but you know what? We both hate them, so let's get after them. It's happened a thousand times before. Now, the wrong approach to this would be, so let's keep that stuff quiet. They don't like it when we talk about blood. That was a big thing a while ago. It's just offensive to talk about blood in the church. And there were denominations that were removing any reference to the blood of Jesus from their hymnals. I remember uh, in, in Christ Alone, talking about the wrath of God was satisfied. There were some denominations that said, can we take that verse out and still include your hymn? And to the Getty's credit, they said, uh, no. <laughs> That's kind of the whole point. We can't just minimize it. We can't uh, remove the offense of the cross, as Paul said. We can't stop talking about sexual morality. We can't stop talking about righteousness by grace through faith. We can't stop talking about repentance and love. Because if we do that, we're just trying to pacify the world, and it won't work. They, they're not going to like you. <laughs> they, they hate everything you stand for. I don't know why we spend so much time trying to get the approval of people that hate Jesus, hate the gospel, hate the Bible, and hate the church. And we go out there and say, well, we want them to like us. They're not going to like you. If that person starts liking you, then you messed something up. Jesus said to beware when all men speak well of you. When everybody talks about how great you are and everything's wonderful, Jesus said, take a look at yourself, because that's what they used to do to the false prophets. The true prophets were sawn in half and thrown into mud pits and exiled. 
We can't downplay what the word says. We can't downplay the offense of the cross. What's the right approach? The right approach is to do what Paul and James are doing here. Romans 12, 18 says, As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. I like that, as far as it depends on you. Because there are times where you've done everything you can, and they just want to fight. You know, fellas, you remember that growing up? You didn't want to fight that guy, but he just was in the mood to fight, and you were going to be fighting that day. I'm trying to explain that to the, the principal, and that never really worked out. But, you know, when someone's right in your face, leave me, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. And then, you know, finally you're, you're going at it. That's what Paul says. Not talking about fist fights, but talking about just living life. As far as it depends on you, you do everything you can to make it right with people and to live at peace. But there are people that won't let you live at peace. The crowd wanted to hear celebrations of Moses and the temple. They wanted to hear condemnations of the Gentiles. They wanted to hear the church denouncing Rome and denouncing the Gentiles. Now, Paul was willing to affirm whatever he could, but I, he's like, I'm never going to get next to your hatred of the Gentiles. This was the purpose of Israel anyway, to be a priest to the nations. I'm out there bringing the gospel, and they're listening there are countless Gentiles around the Roman Empire worshiping the one true God, worshiping the Lord Jehovah and his Messiah Jesus. So no, I'm not going to compromise on that. And it was that failure to get in line that provoked the anger of these people. It was inevitable. And Paul's going to try to defend himself here, and this is one of his long speeches, and I th we'll go through it pretty quickly because this is not mostly new information to you. Starting in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, that's that Antonia fortress right there by the, the temple, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? He said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Not exactly. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, the way is a reference to the church, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, 
Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Okay, so this is one of three major defense speeches that Paul will get in the book of Acts. And he's going to be before several different political figures. But right now, it's before all the Jews in the temple. Now, the tribune thinks that he was an Egyptian. (laughs) This was an Egyptian Jew who had led 4,000 men to march on Jerusalem. And he claimed to have magical powers. He said, when I step on the Mount of Olives, the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall down like Jericho and we're going to march right in. Well, that didn't happen, and Rome came out and killed 400 of those men, and he ran away. So they think, oh, this guy again. It's actually really interesting because he says of the assassins, that word there in Greek and Latin is the sicari, and the sicari were the assassins. They were the zealots that kept the knives in their their cloaks at all times. It was called the dagger men because they were the ones that would assassinate Romans and soldiers and things like that. And in a few years... It's the Sicarii who are going to lead the rebellion against Rome and lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's an interesting little bit of foreshadowing there, you could say. You maybe have heard the Spanish word Sicario, which refers to an assassin or a hitman. It comes from that word there, Sicarii, the assassins. But Paul says, no, I'm not the Egyptian, and I do not have an army of assassins. He says, can I try to talk the crowd down? And as he speaks to them in the Hebrew language, this is likely Aramaic, which was the common language spoken, but it could very well have been Hebrew. Either way, it would have caught their attention. Because everybody spoke Greek. That was the lingua franca of the time. But Paul's about to speak in Aramaic. Because remember, he's, he's trying to make peace between the Jews and the Christians here. So he uses their national dialect. And he calls it in verse 1, his defense. That word for defense is apologia, which is where we get the word apologetics from. You ever hear apologetics? An apologetic is a defense of the faith. It does not mean you are apologizing for Christianity. That's a common misconception, but an apologia in Greek was a defense. So we took the Greek word and made it an English word, apologetics, which means defense. But it's interesting because he doesn't really get into theology or philosophy or Bible study. He just starts telling his testimony. We've already seen this back in Acts chapter 9. You know the story. And as you read through this, you can see that Paul is trying to emphasize his Jewish cred here. I was born a Jew. I was raised in Jerusalem. I was trained as a rabbi by Gamaliel. I know the elders. I know the high priest. I was zealous for the law. I was a persecutor of the way of the church. But what he then explains is, so what happened? That's who I was. What changed? And he tells the story of how the Lord appeared to him and sent Ananias to him. And do you notice what he calls Ananias there? a devout man according to the law. He's trying to show them, guys, there's no, there's no disjunction between the law of Moses and the true Judaism and Jesus. Jesus is the end of the law, we read, right? 
And he adds to the story that we are so familiar with, the road to Damascus, that he was in the temple and he was in a trance, which is the Greek word ecstasis, where we get the word for ecstasy or ecstatic from. You've heard of an ecstatic experience, comes from that. As I was praying in the temple and God warned him to get out of town because these Jews are going to try to kill you, Paul. And he says, you're going to go to the Gentiles anyway. Paul is explaining why he would leave behind all the things they valued so much in order to go and live among the Gentiles. And he's portraying Christianity for what it is, the fulfillment of the law. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives another big long list of all the things that he had as a Jew. I was rising up through the ranks. I had a career ahead of me. I was righteous. But he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Paul is saying in Philippians, he's like, I don't care what I had. I lost it on purpose so that I could gain Jesus. Isn't that what we're all supposed to do? There was nothing that Paul could have said to these people to listen to his theology. He could have said, guys, if you open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 12, the Lord told Abraham that through your seed all the nations of the world shall be blessed. Now that seed was referring to Jesus of Nazareth. And let me explain why. And all the nations are being blessed. He could have done that. We have it in the book of Galatians. But they weren't going to listen to that. He could have stood up and said, Jesus was our sacrifice, just as you're offering sacrifices today. They wouldn't have listened to that. So what does he do? He stands up and he tells his story. Sometimes, you guys, that's all we can do. Stand up and tell our story. To give our testimony. Paul is bearing witness to what Christ has done. That's what that word witness means. We say I was witnessing, I mean I was evangelizing, and that's fine. But technically what we're saying is I'm just telling about what God has done for me. Like a witness in a courtroom. What did you see? Tell us what happened on the night of you know, August the 14th or whatever. Just tell us what happened in your life. What have you seen God do through you? He's telling his story. And sometimes that's the most effective apologia, the most effective defense, because it's your story. Very rarely do you hear of people who say, well, I just listened to all the arguments for the existence of God, and someone laid out the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to be a Christian. <laughs> now that happens, and it's important, but most of the time it's what? She told me her story, and I was like, yeah, I need that too. Or my life fell to pieces and I knew that I needed something. Even these big intellectual guys. I love telling this story because it's, it's so illustrative of this. William Lane Craig, who's a famous Christian apologist, makes his money by going around and proving that God exists in Oxford and Harvard and places like that. You know, How he came to faith was he was in high school and he was having a bad day and there was this girl that was always cheerful and always smiling and he just sat there like, what are you so happy about? And he taps her on the shoulder and he says, what are you always so happy for? He's kind of being grumpy and ornery. And she says, I've got Jesus living in my heart. You got Jesus living. She goes, yeah, here. And she gave him a Bible and said, go home and read this. And he said he read it a little bit. But the thing that turned it around for him was he's like, if somebody can be that joyful all the time, there must be something to this. 
Now, later on, he learns all this incredible philosophy and theology and apologetics, but that's not what converted him. It was her story, just that little story. Jesus gives me joy. Think through your story, guys. Be prepared to tell it. Oh, it's a bad story. Yeah, Paul, Paul killed people, okay? <laughs> yeah, you've got a bad story. The whole point is, look what God did for me. What was your life before? Why was it insufficient? And how did Jesus change it? That's your testimony. My favorite testimony in the Bible is John 9, 25, when Jesus healed the blind man, and they've got him on trial, and they're trying to make him denounce Jesus. Don't you know who he is? Don't you know what he teaches? Don't you know that this is a heretic and he's an evil person? The guy answers, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. And nobody can argue with that. I used to be blind and now I'm not. Same thing with your life. I used to be an alcoholic and now I'm not. I used to be full of rage and anger, now I'm not. I used to be scared to die, now I'm not. I used to have no purpose in life, now I do. Nobody can come and say, ah, no, no, you don't. It's like, this is my story. Well, I don't believe that Jesus did it. It's like, well, you know what? You seem like you're dealing with anger and fear and all those other things. And I'm telling you that the only way I was able to leave that behind was through Jesus Christ. That's what testimonies are for. And I should mention, too, a testimony is not, let's do little humble brags about all the stuff we got into before we got saved. You ever hear that? Someone's going to give an hour-long testimony and 54 minutes of it or all the stuff they used to do before they got saved. Like the proportion seems a little wrong here. Like I had so much money. I was such a great businessman, and there were so many beautiful women all around me. It's like, who is this about, really? <laughs> We've all seen that before. When tensions are high and people don't want to listen to what we have to say, sometimes the best thing you can do is just to tell your story. Because no one can debunk that, really. Oh, you know what? The church is just full of hateful people. Say, listen, I go to church, and I've never felt more loved than I ever have right there in that place. Well, that's just your experience. Well, all I got is my experience, buddy. I don't, I don't have anybody else's. Why don't you come with me and see? There's also a lesson to be learned here that we can't get into for time's sake, but to take the time to hear other people's stories, too. People who are maybe not there yet. They're still on the road to Damascus, and they're hating every minute of it. Listen to them and then say, you know what? I was on that same road, and I'm not there anymore. Can I tell you why? When people are desperate and broken and angry, they'll listen to anything. This is how sometimes our friends get caught up into really weird stuff. You're like, you're, you're believing what now? You're going where? You're subscribing to what idea? You're dating who? What are you doing that for? Because they're desperate and they're broken and they're looking for somebody to love them and give them something real. That's our job. <laughs> That's what being a witness is. When you hear it all the time when you're at work. People will make those comments. I thought life was going to be great, and now here we are. And everybody chuckles and say, hey, I still think life is great. Uh, okay, weirdo, why is that? Because Jesus... Jesus has given me purpose and meaning in life. I can now see the, the value of my family, and I don't have to live for the good old days because I believe the good old days are still to come. And in Jesus Christ, I have joy. See, that's a testimony. It's not always telling your whole life story, although that's great too. But share. Paul knew they weren't going to listen to anything else, so he told his story. But as soon as he said the word Gentiles... Verse 22, up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. 
And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, I read a bunch of commentaries. Sorry, I have to tell this. And they're saying, now we don't know exactly why they threw off their cloaks. I'm like, y'all are a bunch of academic nerds. There's only one reason somebody takes their cloak off when they're mad at somebody. They're fitting to start fighting. (laughs) I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) All right, PhD. I thought that was funny. Throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. A little, little tantrum, isn't it? And the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. What's he saying? is like, citizenships are expensive, and you don't exactly look like a high roller to me. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. "Uh Uh-uh, not touching this guy. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. As soon as Paul says that word, Gentiles... People refuse to listen to him further. That's what, that's what frenzy is. When you're not hearing a word he said, you just heard a word that set you off. You weren't listening. So they throw this collective tantrum, and Paul has to be brought into the Antonia fortress. And the tribune doesn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. He doesn't know what's going on. So he's like, all right, we're, we're going to find out. <laughs> Paul says he did nothing. They said he did this. He said, so you know what, Let, let's just, we'll flog him for a while and see if he's a little more ready to talk. And this is that word that he uses there. This is the Roman flagella that you maybe have heard of before, the leather whip that had the bits of bone and metal. If you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, you know what that is. That's what they were going to do to Paul. But Paul speaks up quickly, (laughs) asks for a phone call, you might say. He claims his Roman citizenship as protection against flogging. He has to kind of convince the guy, but eventually he, he gets out of it. Cicero, maybe you've heard of him, the famous Roman orator said to bind a Roman citizen is a crime to flog him is an abomination and to slay him is almost an act of murder being a Roman citizen was a big deal now we have universal citizenship in the United States that if you're born here you're a citizen that wasn't quite how it worked in Rome you had to be part of a certain class you had to be part of a certain city just because you were in the empire didn't mean anything but Paul was born in Tarsus and because of being born in that city he was given citizenship at birth. This was not the first time Paul had leveraged his rights to protect himself. Remember back in chapter 16 in Philippi when they were beaten with rods and thrown into prison and God set him free with the earthquake and they found out that Paul was a citizen and so they, the city council sent him a letter and said, hey, you can leave now, it's okay. Paul's like, uh-uh, you can come out and make a public apology first and then I will leave. That's back in Acts 16.37. There's an important lesson here. Sometimes people are not going to listen to us. And in those situations, it's important for us to be shrewd and to be thinking about how we're going to protect ourselves. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Innocent as doves means don't do anything that will make you deserve their scorn. Because if they get half an inch, they're coming for you. But also to be wise as serpents. There's nothing super spiritual about being tortured for something you didn't do. 
The Lord has given us permission to take care of ourselves. Paul's like, I'm not about to sit here and get flogged for something I did not do when I'm perfectly willing to explain to you what's going on. Sometimes when Christians will have legal protection or when Christians will try to get out of something that's very difficult or they'll flee persecution, we try to get real snobby. It's like, well, they should stay and suffer for Jesus. Well, that's easy to say when you're not being persecuted. The broad picture here is that when we are in a hostile generation, we need to know when to push and apply leverage and when just to back off. Because Paul did both of those things. There are some times Paul just didn't do anything. He just let the Lord handle it. Then there are times like this where Paul's like, absolutely not. You didn't read me my rights. I didn't get my phone call, and I haven't had a trial yet. You're not beating anybody. (laughs) Some people in the church always want action, right? Get up and fight. Don't let them do that to you. We've got to stand up. Let's go to the Supreme Court. Let's, Let's march in the streets. Let's do our thing. And for them to do nothing is just to be complicit and let it continue. Then you've got other folks that never want to act. Let the Lord handle it. It's going to be okay. Keep your head down. Be quiet. We need both people in the churches. And you need both attitudes in your life. You need to know how to comport yourself. When to push back and when just to be still. And only you know where that is. You've got to be prayerful about it. You've got to know when it's time to push back against certain policies your job are putting in place. And when it's time just to submit to them. I can't give you those answers. You've got to pray and let the Lord lead you. Paul is not being sneaky here by claiming his Roman citizenship. He's not being sinful, but he was being insistent. And there is a time for that, especially in a country like this where we do have rights. Like, no, you don't get to, you don't get to say that to us. Which is why I pray that all the, the churches around the country were all having to deal with various levels of government intervention when it comes to COVID and it comes to all that stuff. And there are some folks that have decided to be like Paul and dig in their heels. And there are others that have decided to Go with the Moses mentality. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. We ought not to be judging our brothers and sisters on that, but instead ought to say, let's do the best that we know to do and pray that God is leading them in the way that they ought to be led. Wrapping it up now, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he's like, this this is such a stupid thing. There's got to be something more here. He unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet and brought Paul down and set them before him. And with that cliffhanger, we're going to leave it for this week. I just couldn't allow us to have one verse left in the chapter. That was going to itch my brain all week long. So Paul has seen the fulfillment of Agabus' prophecy, and the rest is up to the Lord, huh? Hope you can see the parallels here. There were political and social issues that were applying pressure to the church. Faithful Christians are trying their best to navigate the minefield without getting in any trouble. Our job is to work the reconciliation between man and God, but also between man and man. And there are going to be times where we're given the opportunity to speak, and other times where we don't get any opportunity to speak, and we've got to let our lives speak for themselves. Certain things we can never compromise on, right? The cross, the resurrection, salvation by grace through faith, the word of God. And the world will hate us for that. But that's when your light starts to shine and those that are looking for the light will see it and be drawn to the Lord. And that's really what it amounts to, isn't it? That God is the one at work. God had a plan for Paul just like God has a plan for us. And we're just his vessels. So no plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? If only everything was perfect, then we could do it. It's never going to be that way, guys. There's always going to be 
a mob of angry Ephesian Jews trying to bring us down and tear us to pieces for something we didn't do. It's always going to be there in some way, shape, or form. we got to keep going and trust that God has foreseen every obstacle and that in the end the Lord is going to have the victory and we're going to be rewarded for being faithful servants to him.